Yes, Purim is coming. It's a joyful holiday. And in a way, it kind of relates to Daniel in that uh, it takes place outside of the land of Israel. Uh, You have, once again, Jewish people that are not like prophets or uh, you know, uh, people educated in a particular way in order to, to teach the word of God, not a Moses, uh, not an Aaron, right? But uh, you have a Joseph who happens to be uh, uh, the son of his father who's placed in a particular situation. You have uh, Daniel who is uh, from the tribe of Judah, but a promising young man living in uh, the exile. And then you have uh, Mordechai uh, and Esther, uh, interestingly enough, who live after the exile, uh, who conceivably could have been living in Judea, but who did not return. Isn't that interesting, right? Uh, and how they negotiate life in, uh, you know, in Iran, basically, <laughs> you know, in ancient Persia, uh, after the exile. Uh, and uh, so there are all kinds of lessons to be learned. We, uh, we mentioned last time, and it kind of comes up, especially in these first six chapters of Daniel, where, we're, where we are now, that uh, there is no one way to negotiate life in the diaspora. That's one of the things you learn from looking at the life of Joseph, the life of Daniel, and the life of Esther, and the life of Mordecai. They do it differently yet they have some things in common, right? They have in common that they yield to the authorities, okay? They don't come across as like uh, obnoxious or, uh, you know, rebels with a cause, you know? I, I, they live within the world in, uh, uh, that they're placed. They pick and choose where they draw the line, and they seem to pick and choose where they draw the line based on defiling themselves and maintaining their identity as Jews. Seems, in general, we might say that. Uh, yet, they draw the line in different places. And, uh, and they do not paint themselves into a corner, right? And build a big cement wall around themselves so that they're absolutely insulated from every single thing that could possibly contaminate so that they become absolutely irrelevant. No. Uh, that's why uh, it takes great discernment to walk with God. It takes having uh, a relationship with him and that is not based on only a set of rules uh, or simply uh, a cultural manifestation, but a transforming relationship with God both individually and communally. Because in different ages and different seasons and epochs of this world, people who walk with God are faced with different kinds of challenges, different types of challenges. You know, Esther and Mordechai would never, <laughs> would never be able to conceive of the challenges that followers of the word of God are challenged with today. It's not the same world. There are the same principles, the same God, the same word, but it's a different world with a, in a different situation. 
And if we try to live, if we pretend, we basically pretend to live as if it was 2,500 years ago, we paint ourselves into a corner and we may be able to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, I'm living like it was 2,500 years ago. That's great, but we're irrelevant in making a difference in this world for Yeshua. I will say also that Moses himself could not have fathomed the challenges of Esther and Mordechai. And that uh, Daniel, uh, as well as Daniel, the same challenges as Daniel. And so it's very interesting that the, the Bible is not a flat earth. Uh, uh, the, uh, the people who walk with God, who desire to follow the Torah, the prophets, the writings, and, and now that Messiah has come, the, the new covenant as well, we face varieties of different kinds of challenges. But what we learn from these people is first their passion and their perseverance and how they did it, and we can, we can learn from them. While the word is the same and the Ruach HaKodesh is the same, we are now empowered to be able to have discernment and knowledge, to be able when to speak up and when to be quiet, when to attend a particular venue, when not, when to see something, when, when not to. As we see here in Daniel, in the second chapter, God does not keep all of that great wisdom to himself. If you remember, as we, as sometimes you, if you remember from last time, in uh, Daniel chapter 2, where we are, remember that the, uh, the problem was is the king was having nightmares, and uh, the king needed an understanding of these nightmares. That's in our modern English, that's what we call them. They dreams, visions, and he couldn't go back to sleep, and they, they scared him really, really bad. There's certain words in our vernacular we might even desire to use, but... He got scared really, really bad, all right? And he didn't know what to do. Now, from what I've read, it seems that uh, theologically in that world, uh, uh, you know, they were all religious people, right? Uh, that uh, when a person had a, a, a dream or a vision like this, uh, that it meant something, and that if they didn't understand it, a curse would ensue if they didn't understand what was trying to be communicated to them. So the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was desperate for an answer. And that desperation really comes out in the text. I mean, he's ready to kill for an explanation of a, of a nightmare, you know? Uh, and uh, he, he needs, uh, he needs his, his wise men, his, uh, you know, the people that he surrounded himself with to tell him the dream and the interpretation. And they, and they complain Nobody can do this. Only the gods can do something like that. We can't do that. And remember what we said last time? That in verse 11 of chapter 2, it's a little door into the theology of, uh, of the Chaldeans that they could not interact they, they, with these gods. That if the gods knew this, then they were stuck. The gods were not going to tell them. Right? Uh, the gods were all-powerful. Uh, the gods were uh, perhaps providers. But they did not have this kind of uh, interaction where they could go to the gods and get the information and relay it to the king. It's very interesting. So whatever those conjurers and wise men came up with, it was basically human wisdom of the day. See? 
But Daniel, when he finds out, he gets wind of this because on some level he was considered one of these wise men, but he wasn't the first to be chosen to, to figure it out because he didn't even know about it until, uh, until the wise men were all sentenced to death because nobody could figure it out. Daniel says, look, give me, tell the king I will come to him with an interpretation of the dream, right? So he doesn't just say, thus saith the Lord or something like that, does he? No, he brings the issue to, as uh, Randy mentioned in a Chavura, uh, a Tuesday night Chavura, which is sort of like the, uh, the think tank of our, uh, of our book of Daniel here a little bit, uh, uh, that he brings uh, the issue to his friends, and they pray about it, and he receives an answer. We also said last time, and I'm repeating this because who knows the next time you'll you know, hear it, and that is that it says quite clearly in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 2 that they prayed so that they would not die. They prayed so that, so that they would have an answer, they would not die. And isn't that just so true of, of the way we do things? This is not condemned condemning or anything, but it, it, it states, the text uh, states, that uh, they prayed so they would know the mystery, so they would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. But God had something far greater in mind. God gives him the mystery. He gives him the dream and the interpretation so that he can share this with the king and testify before the king about the, 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 the greatness and the grandeur of the God of Israel and also uh, explain vividly about a kingdom to come and a future to come for us today even to be benefited by. Right, and we we talked about the dream or the uh, prayer the last time, uh, right? And the the centrality of this prayer about the the glory of God, the greatness of God, that God is a revealer of mysteries, and that we can go to Him, and that He is the light, and and He is the wisdom, and He indeed is the power. How wonderful it is for us to you know to to know that. And Daniel gives thanks to God for that and educates us and encourages us all these years later about that. But now he goes to the king. That's where we left off last time. All right. So now in verse uh, 24 of chapter 2, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Now, you have to really get the understanding here. Daniel was a low-level wise man. Daniel was, somebody, was one of the exiles, as he'll be described in a second. He's one of the exiles, and he's going to be the one to come to the king and tell him the dream, kind of like Joseph in prison from Genesis 41. Uh, and he's going to go to the king and give the interpretation, and the wise men of Babylon will not be destroyed. So we see in verse 25, Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar. Now he calls him Belshazzar here because he's functioning uh, in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar uh, with his new name and position. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? 
Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Boy, in between that word king and however, there must have been quite a breath uh, taken, you know? In other words, that's the bad news, okay? However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take, notice he doesn't say made known to me, has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the vision in your mind while, uh, it, uh, while in your bed, on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Okay, uh, let's see, and then we'll, let me read the next verse too. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me, more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Okay, just a few things uh, about this passage. First of all, if you look at verse 28, okay, uh, and you look at verse 11, you see that in verse 11, the conjurers and the Chaldeans, the wise men say, the thing which the king demands is difficult and there is no one who could declare it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Verse 28, Daniel says, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to you, see, he has made known to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will take place in the latter days, okay? Uh, and uh, now, just keeping on that point, there is a God who reveals mysteries. If you go down to, now, uh, to verse 30, he mentions himself, but more as the messenger than as the object. And boy, isn't that so different than today? I, I, you know, I didn't even have that in my notes. Isn't that so different than today? That, boy, if somebody has something to say, First, I want to tell you what God told me, okay? Me. He told me. I want you to know he told me. Now, I will tell you. But he told me, and I want, I want you to know that he told me, and I, I will tell you, okay? Right. Uh, Daniel is like a minor, in his own mind, a minor character in all this. God is revealing this to you, king, and then he, and he does say, he gives like a clarification. Yes, 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 he's told me, but not for my own pride or knowledge, or, but so that I can reveal this to you. Daniel understood that he is an image bearer of God. That's what an image bearer of God does, right? I, when people see us, speak to us, uh, after prayer, we, you know, uh, we uh, feel impressed to speak to someone. It's not about me. We bear the image of God. People need to interact with God. And that's, in a sense, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing through Daniel. Here he's interacting with God. It tells us that even a Chaldean king who believes, who has very poor theology and believes in lots of gods, God there's not, God's hand is not so short that he cannot reach anywhere and into any heart of any person. It's not that, well, you know, the world leaders of today are so powerful that God can't speak to them. No, God, God can. And he can even wake them up. 
And he can even like, this is what I want you to do. And then they go, yeah, that's a good idea. Where'd that come from? You know, God can do anything and reach anywhere. So isn't it a marvelous thing that he has opened up our eyes and, and unstopped our ears and has given us a heart of understanding? Wow, what a privilege that is. You know, many years ago, in 1978, I was driving in my car after going to uh, hearing Joel Chernoff sing at a concert in Buffalo, New York, uh, and I was driving home, and I thought, to my, I thought that very thought to myself, isn't it amazing that of the, the millions of Jewish people that are in the world, so few have had their eyes opened and have been given a heart of understanding to know the Messiah. What an absolute privilege that is. And what do we do with that? What do we do with that? And that was the beginning. Andrew, I was already a believer in Yeshua for a few years by that time. But that was the beginning of my journey to vocational ministry, you know? That, wow, what am I going to do with that? And isn't it amazing that God does indeed uh, give us that understanding. So anyway, God gave that understanding to Daniel and through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. Now there's something else here about the dream. Notice that he tells him it's for the latter days in verse uh, 28. See that latter days? Okay. Of course, that, that phrase has been lifted to an entire group of people, right? Uh, and then it says in uh, the next verse, in verse 29, the word future, at least in my English translation, is used. But that comes from this, the same word, latter day, latter, future, okay? So this is important. Now, so much has been written about this uh, dream and the subsequent visions of Daniel that I think that for many of us, we are not quite sure about the dream and the varieties of interpretations. That's important, okay? Uh, because when we inductively study the Bible, in other words, observing the text, we will uh, be refreshed to see what the text does say and what it doesn't say. So it's about the future, all right? That's important to understand about how Nebuchadnezzar is going to receive this dream, how he's going to receive this interpretation. It's about the future. All right. So, uh, now, if we go to verse 31, now we're going to have uh, the interpretation of the dream. Okay? All right. Good. In verse 31, you, O king, were looking... And behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of, extreme, of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance, uh, and its appearance was uh, awesome. Totally awesome. Okay? We could actually say that because that's kind of what he means. Now, let's observe what he says. There's a single statue, not four statues or five statues. One statue, one, one entity, 
Very important to understanding this text. Okay? And this statue was large. It was big and it was bright. And it was, an, it was of extraordinary brightness and splendor. Right? Kind of like that trophy that everybody wants to look at. Uh, no, never mind. Okay. Uh, but anyway, big, you know, bigger than life, so to speak. All right? So you have to get that picture in your mind uh, uh, that that's what he sees. Not just uh, some statue. This was a huge statue and, a, and, and, and bright and extraordinary. One statue. All right? All right. The head, in verse 32, the head of that statue was made of fine gold. Its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of, of clay. So, wow, you see this statue made of precious metals of various values. The head is gold, fine gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay. One statue made of these different kinds of uh, metals uh, and pottery, evidently. Okay? All right. I mean, so far, this is not a nightmare. So far, it's kind of like, okay, wow, a beautiful, I had this great dream about this beautiful statue. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the dream. And so it's a nightmare because seemingly... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is terribly bothered that this statue is destroyed. And evidently, he doesn't understand why and what it's about. I don't get it. The, the, stat, the, the dream itself uh, is of this statue and a stone. Okay? So, uh, the stone, interestingly enough, is not made of precious metals of any kind. Or of pottery, which was also, while it wasn't a precious stone, it was very useful, but of stone, just earth and so on. Not dirt from the earth, but stone. Not made of human hands, right? Okay. So the stone hits the statue in the feet. And because the statue is really top-heavy, the whole thing falls down. And sort of uh, collapses and, 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 and just comes down and it becomes like chaff in the wind and is like blown away. But where it is that stone becomes this big mountain and fills the whole earth, this is troubling 
to the king. So now that we understand visually, so to speak, in our minds, what it is that he dreamt, we got it. A statue with a golden head and then other precious metals of lesser value to its feet. And then out of nowhere, so to speak, comes a stone that hits it in the feet. The whole thing comes crumbling down all at once. Uh, and that stone grows into a mountain. Okay, let's see what it means. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. Verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings. This is the good news. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the gold, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Okay, this was really good news for Nebuchadnezzar. He's the head of gold. He has been given, notice how Daniel says this, by the way. He has been given by the God of the heaven, the God who reveals mysteries. He has been given this authority. He has been given this power to rule and to be magnificent. I think it's also interesting, the more I read Daniel, the more I see irony uh, in the writing of the book. Irony. Uh, it is interesting that he calls Nebuchadnezzar king of kings. It's just a really interesting observation, you know, especially when you get to the end of the dream. All right. All right. So he is the head of gold. Now, it says, after you, there will arise another kingdom below you. It says inferior in your English, but it's more like downward or below you. Okay, that would be actually even better to you. Then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Now, let's look at verse 39 carefully, just to make some observations. It, it says, after you, there will be another kingdom. What it does not say is immediately after you, nor does it say that this next kingdom is going to conquer you. It does not say that the kingdom is going to conquer you. I can live with, okay, after you may mean right after you, maybe, maybe, but it just says another kingdom is going to come, okay? And then a third of bronze, which will rule over all the earth, okay? So what you see so far is, okay, Nebuchadnezzar understands, I'm the head, and after me, there's going to be another kingdom uh, that will be like below me, lesser than me, and then after that, another kingdom. But for me, for Nebuchadnezzar, this is like good news. As was shared in our Chavurah group, it's kind of like Hezekiah. I think Diana shared this, right? Yeah. It's kind of like, remember, Hezekiah learns that... Um, uh, uh, you know, after him, things are not going to be well, but in his life, it'll be all right. So, all right, give me 10 more years, let me have a child, it'll be fine. But, but the future, you know, is uh, ominous, but not in his lifetime, right? And so, perhaps that's what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking, or perhaps Nebuchadnezzar is getting this as, 
uh, you know, Daniel keeps talking, but Dan- well, Nebuchadnezzar here is, I'm the head of gold. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> can't you just like see that on film? You know what I mean? Okay. All right. Uh, but now there's more. Then it says, then there will be a fourth kingdom. Notice it doesn't say, and then after that, there'll be a fourth kingdom. Just says, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Ah, so the fourth kingdom, these legs are, are uh, evidently not inferior. It doesn't say below you or anything like, even though visually that may be true, uh, but not inferior, as strong as iron, which would shatter anything, see? All right. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Hmm. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine uh, with, uh, with pottery. Okay? All right. So, he sees here that, okay, I'm the head, and there's going to be successive kingdoms after my time, and... At some point, there will be a strong kingdom, but who's not totally strong and weak and brittle and through intermingling with other peoples uh, is, uh, becomes, we could almost say, extraordinarily weak. Okay? That is fascinating when it says, in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So there's something weak, by the way, about peoples um, coming together that are not of one another. They might say, what are you talking about? Hang on a minute. But just kind of keep that thought. All right, so now in verse 44, so now we have basically an understanding that the statue is... Empires, kingdoms, we could use the word empires maybe in our world. It's sort of a stronger word, I think. I know when I think kingdom, I think of like ancient world or, you know, uh, just, just not like uh, something concurrent toward the world we live in. But empires, right? Uh, peoples that rule, imperialists that rule, you know, rule others in varieties of ways and, and so on, Okay. All right, so we see that the statue is empires, okay? Uh, And that the Babylonian Empire is at the top, okay? And now successive uh, empires. Now, the general understanding, we're going to stop here for a second. The general understanding, conventional wisdom of these empires, is Babylon. There's two versions of this. Babylon 
Medes and Persians is the second one, because they really didn't have a Mede empire, so to speak. Okay? Uh, the third one would be, the, would be Greeks, like Alexander and so on. And the fourth one, Rome, the one of iron, Rome, the more, most powerful of all, that eventually disintegrates and, and so on. Okay? The other version of this is Babylon, Medes, Persians, and Greeks. And that the Roman Empire is sort of amalgamated with the, with the Greeks, comes out of the Greeks. All right? Those are the, 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 the versions uh, of this. Now, when, this was, when, when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream in time, in real time, had the dream in the 6th century, you know, okay, um, this may very well be what Daniel explained, okay, uh, that uh, you have this series of, uh, of empires. These are, are, are empires that, that are coming. Right, that may very well be. Uh, if if I was going to get into a discussion on on this, I I would uh, have the fourth probably as the the Roman uh, Empire, certainly. All right, uh, and and that's very helpful. But but let's continue, and we'll see where this is going. Sadly, that's usually where this conversation ends. All right, all right. Let's see. Now, in verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven, see, when he says the God of heaven, this is his God, the God who reveals mysteries, you know, okay? The God who gave Nebuchadnezzar the power will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, unlike the statue. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. In other words, this is the end. This is the bottom line. This is the final kingdom of all. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. Again, you know, he ends it with what, where he started. This is the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Okay. So, usually we read this and we'll just say, okay, there's four kingdoms and uh, conventional wisdom among Messiah followers then is, during the days of the Roman Empire, Yeshua came, Right? And he, uh, he inaugurated uh, his uh, kingdom. And so today you have a manifestation of this fifth kingdom, the body of Messiah, uh, more powerful than, and, and, dest- and destroying all these other kingdoms. Okay, first of all, uh, by observation, human observation of like the world, okay, after Yeshua came, there were horrible world empires on earth. Okay? I don't know if that's like a surprise. Okay? Horrible empires continued. The Roman Empire continued. 
Ter- now, for, if, from the point of view of Daniel, of course, where the Jewish people are the center, the Jews were in a, were in a horrible exile for 2,000 years that basically continues to this day. You had empire after empire, some that, com- some that come to mind. Uh, you had uh, certainly, uh, uh, well, the continuation of the Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Empire. You have uh, the uh, Spanish Empire. Uh, you had a British Empire. You had a German Empire. And there are empires to this day. So when it comes to the Jewish world, boy, this fourth kingdom or this fifth kingdom hasn't really uh, turned out so well for us. In fact, in the Jewish world, if you read a Jewish interpretation of these, the fourth is the Roman. No doubt that fourth kingdom of iron is the Roman Empire. But guess what the Roman Empire turns into, morphs into? The church. Yeah, the church. All right? And let me tell you, if you have, if you look at the span of history, I hate to say it, but Islam is like the new kid on the block of Jewish persecution. Okay? So it's kind of sad when you read uh, uh, Jewish interpreters uh, of these, of, of Daniel chapter 2 and also of chapter 7 and so on. It's very sad. The legacy. We all know it's not true of the, of the true body of Messiah and so on. But of the institution, sadly, that is the history. And that's, that motivates Jewish interpreters to view the fourth kingdom as the Roman Empire as it exists in the church to this day. However, according to the text, okay, reeling ourselves in to the text, did Yeshua agree with that understanding that, well, that fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire, and now here I am, and now here is this kingdom, and it's going to manifest itself? No. Very bluntly and clearly, if you look in Matthew chapter 24, in Matthew chapter 24, Toward the end, all right, uh, he is uh, going to say in verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Okay, now that quote, that comes from a little bit later in Daniel, but following, as we'll see, this fourth kingdom. It's It's going to be in a later vision, this fourth kingdom. Yeshua is clearly saying it has not happened yet. This is not it. Not only that, but in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, when Yeshua is with his disciples, what is their burning question? Are, now are you going to establish the kingdom? You know, like when uh, are we going to be up, uh, uh, out of the thumb of the, from under the thumb of the Romans? And Yeshua says basically, not yet. You see, he inaugurated the kingdom presently, but as we like to say, not yet. And in Daniel chapter 2 is that not yet part. He's talking about a real kingdom 
that will really exist in this world that will conquer all other empires known to man. Okay? Now, notice very carefully that, uh, again, in verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It will never be left for another evil. And it says it will crush and put an end to all these other kingdoms. And then in verse 45, again, very carefully, and as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. Notice that he destroys them all at once. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't just destroy the iron. It's not like the gold is is not there, and the, the silver and the bronze, like they're gone. Now, some would say they're subsumed into later kingdoms. Well, that helps, I guess, if you have to make it fit into something. But it's one statue, and the one statue comes tumbling down. Yes, he speaks of four successive kingdoms. Now, this is really important, and that is that right from the beginning, he talks about one statue, one extraordinary uh, uh, statue, all right? Now, this stone is going to destroy all of the, uh, all of the kingdoms, all right? Now, may I suggest that the number four of the four kingdoms, four is important, that there's four of them, not six of them or two of them or, or three of them, but four of them. Because in many other places in the Bible, including, the pan, including what Yeshua said in Matthew 24, oftentimes in the Bible, when you see four of something, like four corners of the earth, four winds of heaven, four judgments, uh, uh, four faces, four living creatures, Four, lots of fours. Read the, uh, read the first chapter of Ezekiel and you'd think you're on a golf course, okay? Uh, that the word four, 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 over and over and over again. That especially when, even the way we use the four corners of the earth, it speaks of something in its totality. Now it doesn't have to, okay? I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying by observation it is interesting that the, you have these it's one statue that's destroyed, not four statues, okay? But perhaps this statue of these four kingdoms speaks not only of four kingdoms, but of every kingdom, but of the totality of empires that are built with precious metals, with human hands, made to be glorious. Can you think earlier on in the Bible, of another entity that was built of human hands, perhaps we'll say reaching to heaven, that gives you a hint, right? That uh, was certainly something that was not of God, but, uh, but represents of mankind uh, as one being like God, Babel. Isn't it interesting that Perhaps what Nebuchadnezzar sees is like a Babel made of different empires, of different peoples that represent them all in one way, shape, or form. 
And isn't it interesting that from the wisdom of this world, perhaps the wisdom of the sages and the conjurers and the magicians, that the more we are all unified as one people, that's the strength. But in the statue of these empires, the weakest part is the part where the seeds of man comes together uh, of, um, of, many, uh, of many different peoples, physically. Much like Babel, and that God destroyed Babel. And that the day is going to come when this stone, not made with human hands, is like the, uh, you know, the, uh, the wrecking ball, in one sense, that hits the statue. And the whole thing comes down. Every empire is indeed dissolved. May I suggest that by focusing all of our attention on Rome this and Greece this and is it the Medes and the Persians or the Persians and the Medes, we are missing the point. And the point is, is that the day is going to come when world empire will indeed be shattered and in its place will be the mountain of God. Uh, and isn't it great to be on the right side of this, right? Now, there's some other things to recognize. The fact that the stone is a mountain, the stone becomes a mountain, that's rather interesting because mountains in the Bible are very interesting. You know, um, I have brought it with me even up here. Uh, if you took uh, uh, Henry's uh, mini course, uh, or a real important course, on uh, uh, being a slave of God, he mentioned an author, John Levinson. Well, he mentioned one book by John Levinson, but he's written a lot of books. And another book that he's written is called Sinai and Zion, an entry into the Jewish Bible. And in here, he describes from the Bible, Israel's relationship with God can be defined by two mountains, right? Of course, Sinai and Zion. And he goes into lots of detail about those mountains and about how God is understood in those mountains, in the sense of those mountains, uh, and the importance of mountains. But in the ancient world, mountains were like places where the gods would dwell. And they were, and mountains were the places where judgments would come forth. And isn't it interesting that uh, the word of God came forth from a mountain, that God rules from a mountain? Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, if you've been to Israel, you know, the Temple Mount, where the Temple Mount is, and the mountains that surround Jerusalem, and God is in his holy mountain. I won't take the time. Read Psalm 48. Uh, read the account of Sinai. The, 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 uh, the mountain of God, the Mount of Mount Zion, is in a lot of places. Where you may be familiar with it most, perhaps, is in the beginning of Isaiah. Like in Isaiah chapter 2. In Isaiah uh, 2, where we read, Now it will come about in those last days. Same word. Ding, ding, ding. Okay? In, this, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, uh, and they'll even be singing. Right? And Paul Wilbur will be leading them. No, 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 no. Okay, no. Okay. Uh, just joking there. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. 
that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See, no more world empires. There'll be a mountain instead of uh, a godless uh, empire. You see, so that's uh, uh, very important. Understand uh, why mountain is used here, perhaps. Why uh, we have four uh, uh, um, uh, kingdoms. Why we have a single statue uh, composed of varieties of these um, uh, of these uh, metals, right? Uh, and, and there's so much more. For example, in the Brit Hadashah, isn't it interesting that Yeshua speaks about a temple not made with hands? Just like the stone and the mountain not made with hands. That perhaps that is an echo in the Brit Hadashah of the stone. And the stone! Ay, ay, ay! The stone, right? The stone which the builders rejected would become the chief cornerstone. Don't we read about the stone being Yeshua? And then later on in the Brit Hadashah, like in 1 Peter chapter 1, this, we see the stone as relating to all of us, the mountain. And, and boy, in our Chavurah, Linda gave a great, a great uh, little uh, uh, idea about that. It was really uh, fabulous. When you compare the statue with the head of Nebuchadnezzar and the body of Messiah with the head being Yeshua... Who wins, right? The kingdom of God wins. And so in one sense, we are the mountain, and in another sense, the mountain has yet to come. That's why you see always this thing in the Brit HaRashah. Paul says, not that I've attained it, you know, but I, uh, but I press on. And he says, oh, we groan, yes, we ourselves even groan. Uh, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan, waiting for the redemption of our body. There's the present and then there's the future. And that is where we indeed live. And you see, God has called us to make a difference in this world. You see, the mystery, according to another place in the Brit Hadashan, Matthew chapter 13, the mystery of the kingdom. The mystery of the kingdom is that it would inaugurate in an invisible form under the reign of the Messiah and that it can be rejected. That is the parable of the seeds on the different, uh, on the rocks and on the good soil and the bad soil, it can be rejected. Not only that, but it looks small and insignificant, like that mustard seed, like the mustard seed or the pearl of great price. But yet the reality is, the new revelation is, is that Yeshua, the stone, not, not, a not looking like a precious metal, would come and be more powerful than these kingdoms. Doesn't it remind you of Isaiah chapter 52 at the very end, which is the beginning of chapter 53, when you read, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Not gold, not silver, not bronze, not even iron or pottery. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. And that word sprinkle is the same word used for sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat, by the way. He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. And that day is indeed coming. And God has called us to testify of it, to demonstrate it, 
uh, in, our, uh, in our own lives. Uh, and so, yes, indeed, Nebuchadnezzar is the head, the head of gold. And yes, indeed, there are all kinds of, of kingdoms uh, and empires and uh, cultures. Uh, and the fact of the matter is we are living in the midst of many an empire, actually in many ways. Uh, for example, perhaps we could think of, yes, we've looked at Babel, uh, that, uh, and we see that this statue will fall, but it represents not only political empires, but cultural empires as well, and intellectual empires of, of pride and self-aggrandizement and uh, power and greed and perversion and oppression of peoples and imperialism. These kingdoms all are represented, may I suggest, in these kingdoms uh, of this statue. And we have to ask ourselves, then, if we are of the stone... Why do we pretend to be of gold, silver, bronze, and iron? Why do we pretend and want to be part of that statue? Because the stone is like coming from left field, boom, and hits it, the stone clearly doesn't exactly fit in. It's important for us to recognize that's what salt and light is all about. That's what Yeshua was talking about. Look at Yeshua himself. He didn't seem to fit in. Yet at the same time, he was able to relate to people and make a difference. Daniel did not fit in. Yet he was able to relate to people and to make a difference. We should not be fitting in. But we should be relating well to people. Not simply pointing fingers at them and hating them. But relating to them in order to make a difference so that little by little we can chip away at this statue to become part of that mountain. And so therefore, we have to again uh, you know, say to ourselves, why am I doing this? Why am I going there? Why am I interacting with that? Why am I seeing this? Why do I find that entertaining? Uh, how do I spend my time? What do I do at night? What do we need to ask ourselves that question. Am I of the stone? Or am I of the bronze or the silver or of the gold? Uh, which one am I? So finally, in uh, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's response. This is, okay. Nebuchadnezzar's response. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. What a strange verse. Nebuchadnezzar's response and David's response to Nebuchadnezzar's response. Nebuchadnezzar is like all excited, right? He's excited. He fell on his face, paid homage to Daniel. He recognized, what does Nebuchadnezzar see? I am the head of gold. <laughs> he does not have the foresight to be able to internalize what Daniel is saying. I am the head. What did he say? I am the, what, did, what was the interpretation of the dream? I am the head of gold. Okay? That's what he got. And isn't that just like today? Live for this moment, the empire for today, I am the head of gold. Right? And he responds like someone would respond to a benefactor in the ancient world. Uh, uh, grossly offering them sacrifices and, and so on and so forth. 
And Daniel, Dan, now some have said, well, how come Daniel doesn't act like Paul, you know? Well, because Daniel was living in, in, uh, in this age, and, and he's not receiving this worship, but he's just simply allowing Nebuchadnezzar to do his thing. But also the picture, get the picture, the king, the most powerful man in the world at the time is paying homage to a Jewish exile. And so the world will pay homage to Yeshua, the one who came from Galilee, the one who was born in Nazareth, the one who was executed, the one who was made fun of. This one, the suffering servant, is indeed the king, is indeed the stone. And so a great picture at the end of this, of the nations bowing to the God of Israel through this Jew, and ultimately through uh, Yeshua, the Messiah. And what does Nebuchadnezzar say? The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of God and a Lord of, and a, and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. So Nebuchadnezzar has this understanding of God, and he's very appreciative that he can understand the vision but I am the head of gold, okay? And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made requests of the king that he appoint Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. And so now Daniel has this supreme position because he could interpret the king. God had brought all of this to pass so that Daniel could be placed in the right place for the right time, so that Nebuchadnezzar uh, could have his dream uh, interpreted, and that we would be able to know that in the end, God wins. And isn't it great to be on his side? And when we embrace Yeshua, we are transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, God, that when we look at the text, we understand what you're saying. Lord, thank you, God, that you opened up our eyes and revealed to us the great truth of this vision. Lord, I pray, God, that we would recognize that we live in the midst of empires, political and cultural and social and all of it. Lord, may we be light to this darkness. Lord, may we be image bearers of you. And Lord, may we not get depressed and discouraged as we watch the, the news and it just seems to be a no-win situation. Lord, may we know that we have a hope that does not disappoint. May we know that the day is indeed coming when there will be a physical victory in this world. But Lord, may we live, as Peter tells us, with this hope as a living hope, knowing that you hang on to us, you hold on to us, and you are bringing us to that day. May that empower us, Lord, via your Holy Spirit, via your Ruach HaKodesh, to speak into the culture, to speak into this world, and to demonstrate an alternative way of life. Lord, may we understand that Yeshua is indeed the alternative and messianic community is indeed the alternative 
way of life. Lord, may the world see it, desire it, and embrace it in you. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen.